Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to Rob Zervations and boy, do we have a show for you today. We are going to uh, drive right up to that magnificent threshold called the 2000s, otherwise also referred to as the aughts, A-U-G-H-T-S, the aughts. This is not my favorite period for comic books and, and it never will be. And there's nothing that you can say to change my mind, but there's a whole lot for us to discuss. It is a very interesting time in the comic book industry, uh, circa 2000, because what people um, perceived as the meltdown of comics pretty much started right around the time that Marvel Comics filed for bankruptcy in January or literally like uh, the day after Christmas, because I've told you guys in my Heroes Reborn uh, podcast that I was, because I was a contract player and, or the size of my contract, one of the two, I was given a heads up that the day, the day after Christmas that, uh, they'd be filing for bankruptcy and Marvel did not emerge for that for a number of years, but Marvel's bankruptcy had nothing to do with their comic book sales. It's the, it's the biggest misnomer that I hear across social media. And I, and I, I realize if you were, you know, my son was born in May 2000. So he is currently 21. He will always be whatever year it is. My wife was born in another like, you know, solid year 1970. So she's always kind of reflecting the year um, in regards to to however old, whatever that last number on her, her, uh, her age is. Okay. But, but to be 2000 at the beginning of like a new age. All right. So, so my son is always, you know, He's, if it's 2021, he's 21. Next year, he'll be 22 in 2022. So I think about like, he's grown to adulthood in this time, 22 years have passed. And of course, um, so many of you who weren't alive leading up to that and the the millennium changeover from, from 99 to 2000, we literally, my family and I knew absolute nut jobs that thought the world was going to end on New Year's Eve of the 2000s and the the new millennium was going to bring down bring about the computer crashes and all these I mean literally I know a family who had a bunker they had armaments they had food and they <laughs> what they needed was a shrink what they needed was a shrink we celebrated with all our friends uh you know as at at the turn of the clock and and funny how nothing changed do you got do you guys who are alive all remember that it was hysterical the the, the millennium scare um turned out to be just a bunch of nonsense and, and maybe some uh, propaganda in order to sell stuff. But along with that turning of the clock, the comic book age was changing. Of course, we had, uh, uh, it was an interesting time for Marvel as they had just entered into this new pact where Bob Harris was leaving after many years and, and a lot of sales. And, and again, uh, comic book sales weren't a problem for Marvel. They were selling tons of comic books but the comic book division wasn't why they had money problems and the comic book division wasn't going to, you know, take them out of these money problems, okay? And uh, so, so when people, again, when I say the biggest misnomer I hear is that people are like, oh, you know, Marvel's bankruptcy. It was all because the comics weren't selling. No, that's not true. There's nothing even remotely true about that. If anything, then, you know, Marvel's comic sales were as good as everybody else's comic sales, if not better during that period. But uh, 
what what happened in a nutshell marvel bought too many companies the the man who owned uh marvel uh at the time ron perlman had decided that he would continue to amass uh smaller companies and try and put them all together to make one major company he bought panini a french sticker company and they're a big deal they're a big publisher of all of stickers and comics in in italy uh, they bought uh, Toy Biz, a, a, a toy company, you know, manufacturer of plastics and all that comes with it, all the billables, all the overhead. They bought a, distribu- a distribution center for their comic books called Heroes World. It was the um, one of the smaller distribution centers. They, in, they, they, they bought it and attempted to make it their um, rival to Diamond Comics, given that you could only get your Marvel comics for a number of years through... Heroes World, and then of course they were always going to have a seat at the table when that ran down because of how successful their comics were. So of course their comics weren't the reason that they went into bankruptcy. It was all these companies that they had purchased, um, trying to build a bigger, a bigger, better widget, and it just kind of collapsed under its own power. And then they had to go about the, you know, um, business of building back better, building back better, and you know they did. But the uh, the Marvel that we know today uh, was not built in 2000, but certainly the seeds were planted, and we can dance with some of that today. Um, all of the major companies went through a giant sea change during that time, but Marvel was transitioning. Bob Harris was gone. They had brought in the Bill Jemis and 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 Joe Casada as the uh, you know publisher. But interestingly enough, Bill Jemis. His reach was further than that of just publisher. Um, when they relaunched, I, I, for me, the signature move that they did, which was, uh, you know, I was told again and again and again, and I mean, you can see that the blueprint was what Jim Lee and myself had done with Heroes Reborn in relaunching Marvel's iconic characters for a new age, making a fresh jumping off point, putting a... Uh, Putting a new spin or a new take or a fresh coat of paint really is all it generally takes. And where we had relaunched Fantastic Four, Captain America, Avengers, and Iron Man, the Ultimate line was going to take on their existing giant best-selling titles and put a new uh, fresh coat of paint on them, starting them kind of really putting the clock all the way back. The difference being between Heroes Reborn and the Ultimate Universe is they didn't stop making modern-day X-Men and modern-day Spider-Man at the time. They continued forward so that the Ultimate Universe was a different universe altogether, and there was no need to um, justify it via an onslaught creating a pocket universe. They just said the Ultimate Universe is kind of for our new readers and is a new jumping-on point, and they took it very more, I, I feel, more pragmatically um than Heroes Reborn, but those are the those are the lessons that you learn. Maybe the next time around you do it a little differently and you don't have to make it a tether, which brings its own weight to it. And by continuing with the existing X-Men, as it were, uh, because at the time they were just about to reboot in the best possible way in 2001 with Grant Morrison at the helm. Uh, and I've talked about that uh, at length here on different podcasts about, about the X-Men and the changeover and the success over the years. Again, after Chris Claremont, I put... Grant Morrison is the single biggest influence on the X-Men books. And that happened in the first, in the early 2000s. And he really brought, again, his absolute A-game with introducing uh, his big wrinkle, 
especially that first year, which to me was the most exciting year, was uh, Cassandra Nova, which was the introduction that Charles Xavier had a twisted, evil, very powerful uh, sister. And she was out to uh, disrupt and eliminate and eradicate everybody. So it, it made for fantastic comics, especially the chapters that Frank quietly was able to produce artistically. Um, but so Marvel had that going at the same time they were giving you the younger version of Ultimate, of the Ultimate X-Men. And of course, the Ultimate Spider-Man model. And the reason I mentioned Bill Jemis and why his reach is different, when they were collecting and giving uh, Ultimate Spider-Man its first omnibus, I'm not going to walk outside and grab it. I've, I've looked at it. I may have read it on air before. But in the, they did a special version of this omnibus collecting the first maybe 18, 20 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. And there's a Barnes & Noble version. And, of course, Barnes & Noble uh, continues to be kind of the, the premier, the last bookstore standing, the premier bookstore bookseller uh, in, 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 in the United States here. And uh, they gave a Barnes & Noble premium omnibus special edition. And so that's, I, I was like, I have to have this. This is cool. I, I wasn't even really all in on that series, but I like collected editions. And you give me a new special um, coat of paint on 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 a, on, a, on a collected edition, and you make it a little more bougie, like this one was. And I, I went in on it, and and I was flipping through it, and the the writer's credit does not go solely to Brian Bendis; it goes to Bill Jemis, first card. Brian Bendis, second card. But Bill Jemis, top. Brian Bendis, bottom. First card matters. You negotiate for that stuff. There's a reason. You know, certain Gerard Butler gets his name floating all all on its own before a film, and he's not um, you know teed up uh, with another talent. Those those first card is a term, and uh, and Bill Jemis is 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 story by writer on on this uh, this Ultimate Spider-Man collection. So so it was interesting how Bill Jemis he kind of showed his um, his penchant for. Uh, injecting himself beyond just maybe what would be the norm as a co-kind of publisher executive, uh, you know, um, um, along with Joe Casada, who was kind of EIC co-publisher, okay, editor-in-chief slash co-publisher. What happened when Marvel gets a lot of the notice because, of, of course, they're the industry leader, and the industry leader is always going to get um, a little more ink than everybody else, a little more notice, Uh the 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 big deal, the signature move that they did was this ultimate initiative, which was to give you brand new adventures. And I've told you in a previous uh, podcast that when I was out to lunch in Chicago, Wizard World Chicago, in the in two thousand of, uh, of 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 July, uh, and the reason being was I had I was doing Wolverine that summer. Uh, Steve Scrose. Uh, super talented guy had done all the storyboards for the Matrix. Uh, if you remember, did Wolverine? I think 50, 51, 52, 53. He was the brand new force. Steve had done an exceptional but very brief because of the circumstances with the partner that I had gone in on my publishing company. Awesome. Uh, before it ever really got launched, at least the the Youngblood stuff. About two years in, when we finally decided to put Alan Moore and Steve Scrooge together, and Steve Scrooge showed up doing the best version of Steve Scrooge ever, the company cratered 
the, con the, the concept cratered and I had to um, maneuver myself out of that during that period. Well, Steve had wowed people just with those like two issues of Youngblood. He'd done a Youngblood Zero, a Youngblood Half, and then the first full issue. And it blew people away. It was it would have no doubt been one of the buzzier books because just based on one issue, I'm, I'm telling you, like the press was all over it. And I'm going to give you really the, the peek behind the curtain. It wasn't just Alan Moore. It was Steve. Steve was fantastic. Well, they decided to give Steve uh, the, the writing and penciling and inking helm, much like how the Frank Millers of the world and the Todd McFarlane's and the Rob Liefeld's and the Jim Lee's and the Walt Simonson's had stepped up and the John Burns to become writer artists. They had given that same microphone to Steve. He had to leave after one arc because uh, the Matrix sequels were getting done and the Wachowskis wanted to keep the team together and, and bring Steve back, who was a key uh, component, a key uh, player in the original Matrix. He did Youngblood after he completed the original Matrix storyboards. He had kind of apprenticed under another um, stellar talent named Jeff Darrow, whose kind of biggest, I think, glossiest claim to fame is his uh, his work with Frank Miller on Hard Boiled, which was uh, a seminal uh, uh, Frank Miller, uh, uh, Jeff Darrow kind of uh, crime, sci-fi crime uh, uh, serial that they collected together. You should definitely check it out. It's fantastic. Steve had taken some of Jeff's uh, uh, influences and implemented them into his own, and it really made for uh, an exciting new version of Steve Scross. He did these Wolverine issues, and then he was called away to do The Matrix. I was actually on the 101 freeway when I was called by Bob Harris and uh, picked up, and he said, Rob, I need your help. Could you pinch hit for four months on Wolverine? Uh, and, and he told me those books would be coming out in uh, July, August, September, October. So take the fall months just to 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 give us some room because Steve Scross is not going to be able to do the book beyond 53. So the summer, uh, so that that was, I was called probably February, March of, uh, of, of 2000. And then I went on to write and draw uh, Wolverine 54, 154, 155, 156, 157. And uh, uh, Ian Churchill drew uh, 156, 157. I did 154, 155. And uh, so I was um, producing a book that was Marvel's number two seller at the time, my, the Wolverine issues that I charted. Again, I know this intimately because I was there at the time. I had a seat at the table. Uh, I think I think Wolverine 154 was like 110, 115,000 copies, and these were the top sellers at the time. It was a little bit worrisome. X-Men was like 120, you know, Wolverine 115, um, and those were the number one and two books Marvel was putting out. Those were the top sellers in the industry uh, for those months. So again, I'm being um, wined and dined by Mr. Bill Jemis, and that's when he is telling me what he believed was, was the breakdown of the X-Men movie that came out that summer, the Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen, you know, took everybody by surprise, that movie that they um, launched, that really, really launched the comic book superhero franchise that we are entering into today. I know that there are people who want to take up for Blade. My issue with Blade is I knew everyone who made the, the movie, the guys who optioned it, as well as the executives at New Line Cinema, my buddy Brian Witten, they made a vampire movie first foremost, a horror thriller first foremost. It has been semi-retconned, but the thing with Blade and the end of the discussion is Blade did not um, result in a single 
green light for any other comic book films. At the time, everybody and their mother was still trying to get their comic book movies made, but the resistance was there, and Blade was not um, enough to leap over the stench that people were pointing to in regards to Batman and Robin, which had been sort of an embarrassing smear. And uh, again, if you remember um, from Uma Thurman's Poison Ivy to the ridiculous version of Bane to Arnold's very over-the-top um, version of Mr. Freeze, uh, whatever you think of Batman and Robin, the industry didn't like it. The industry took it as the biggest cautionary tale. And it had pumped the brakes on a bunch of not only myself, my own comic book movies, but other comic book movies that were in development. Blade had come out and had done well for a low-budget, modest, budgeted, but very stylish. Let me also say, Blade is a fantastic movie. Blade 1 and Blade 2 are spectacular. They're great. But sometimes you can make a great movie that has no echo, that doesn't get anything else going. The vampire-slash-horror genre was a big deal. It, it was... um. It was picking up a lot of steam, and uh, and they, they they stayed right into that really tight thriller horror thriller mode. It was only recently that even in the last few years, um, box office mojo moved it from horror thriller into kind of slash. It puts horror thriller slash comic book film on it or superhero because. As great as Blade was, it didn't get anything going. The X Men had been in development for over eight years at Fox. If anything, if Blade was the success everyone says it would have been, they wouldn't have slashed the budget on X-Men back as far as they did at like $60, $65 million. Uh, it was just a few weeks ago when Hugh Jackman was doing his interviews for uh, Reminiscence that he mentioned that Fox thought they had a bomb on their hands, that he knows that 47 minutes, his his words, and he says that that's his guesstimate, 47 minutes of the X-Men that he saw a few weeks before it was um, released that, that, that the version he saw prior to it hitting the public had 47 extra minutes in it. He, he says there's tons of cuts in that movie. He also is quoted as saying, my manager told me not to tell anybody that the lead role that I was in, because I needed to tell people when I was auditioning that I was a lead in an upcoming Fox film, he said, do not tell them it's a comic book film. This, from Hugh Jackman's lips, goes against this notion that Blade was fueling anything. So in fact... X-Men was the movie that took everybody by surprise. It had spandex characters flying around, using magnetic powers, storm powers, psychic powers, blasting their visor, and X-Men excited people. It, it was like, wow, it was the little engine that could. And it took that summer uh, by storm. It made a lot of money by Hollywood standards, period. Fox had budgeted it to the point that it's um, profitability was huge, which is why they put X2 into Fast Track and got it out there, and why X2 followed as closely behind Spider-Man 1 as it did. Spider-Man 1 was also already happening because it had been freed at the end of the 90s, early 2000s. The judge finally untangled all the rights. Canon Films, James Cameron, everybody and their mother had a, um, had a claim, some sort of option, Marvel had sold all sorts of manner of, of rights to Spider-Man and it had to be untangled by a court. The judge gave the rights back to Marvel. Sony, as the story goes, was at the courthouse with a $20 million check ready to make that deal. And if you're coming out of bankruptcy and that $20 million check or that $20 million deal or that promise of you'll make $20 million a movie, which was unheard of at the time in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, for a comic book company to be getting $20 million a, a, a picture... DC Comics was not getting $20, $20 million 
her movie. They were a part of a giant Warner Brothers machine now, which had self-option. I mean, they own this stuff, so they didn't need to cut any checks. So for Marvel to now go go from the few hundreds of thousands of dollars that they were making on movies like Blade and X-Men, and yes, that's true, that, that, that Marvel executives with absolute straight faces told me even way back then, the, the deals that X-Men and, and Blade, those types of options, those were not significant dollars with which to deliver them from bankruptcy or with which to build the empire that they would eventually build. The biggest, most significant taste they got was when they were given that money by Sony to jump to the head of the line. That everybody wanted to make Spider-Man, but Sony was aggressive and said, $20 million a movie. And Avi Arad and the think, you know, the, 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 the think tank that was behind Marvel at the time said, let's do this. Now, it turned out to be a great thing because the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies that resulted from that deal obviously are beloved, hugely successful, ridiculously entertaining, and, and only enjoy like the most positive space in our brains. So, uh, but that summer, X-Men in 2000 was seen by Bill Jemis, his words, as a missed opportunity that they did not have enough to capitalize when the movie was in theaters to draw people to more of their Marvel comics. It was one of the justifications they used when removing Bob Harris, fair or unfair. Was Bob playing it safe? Probably. Was there a roadmap to, you know, prepare for a film that could or could not be a big hit, given that most of them weren't? The, the Batman tie-in, the Batman tie-in comics, other than the very first Keaton one, so we are now looking at over a decade. The 1989 one was something significant. It had that comic book drawn by Jerry Ordway was a huge hit. In the decade that followed, the movie tie-ins were not seen as successful because there had been nothing that had had the ramifications of Batman. So part of the Ultimate Universe design was that by the time Sony Spider-Man made it out, they weren't going to have the same mistake that they made with X-Men. Ultimate Spider-Man number one would have at least four to five to six collected issues out by the time Spider-Man hit, the, or maybe a year's worth. The, the idea was that they wanted to have accessible, if you liked, walked out of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, uh, and you liked teenage Spider-Man getting bit, you know, at an experimental lab visit with his high school buddies in high school with Aunt May, with Mary Jane, the whole origin, jumping on the earliest possible vision of this character, story content-wise. They wanted to have a movie that met you exactly where you were and said, here, we have this for you. At the same time, you, the existing person who loves Spider-Man, you, the existing Spider-Man fan, could continue on your adventures, which would lead you to what I thought was a really exciting period, the J. Michael Straczynski era, especially, again, his first year, just like Grant Morrison's first year, that is when I just think both of those creative approaches, Straczynski's and Grant Morrison's, were just, um, they were in, on fire. Very exciting time. Maybe the most exciting time I was buying those books in the last 20 years was that period. And certainly, again, Grant Morrison, while, they were, while, while Mark Miller was giving you the new kind of, hey, look, we look like the X-Men in the, in, in the Fox films, we're young, we're in school, we're battling Magneto and his Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Um, while that version was coming out, Grant Morrison was giving you his mind-blowing uh, next... It, it, the two big concepts, Cassandra Nova, Xavier has an evil, more, more powerful uh, you know, sibling, 
and also this you know secondary mutation where beast it's like a third mutation because beast you know just used to have the big hands and the big feet then he became kind of what they call the blue furred um kind of more of a of a kind of a man ape and now he became more kitten-like so so grant was introducing a lot of big concepts driving x-men at the same time that you were getting a safe more accessible ultimate x-men so the ultimate line to me is the ultimate lack of a better term the ultimate kind of expression of everything that marvel was trying to get off the ground in the early 2000s the aughts but it was not without misfires and uh before i go any further i should tell you that to me looking back now 21 years later the 2000s were defined have been defined by two significant writers one is robert kirkman i believe it is undeniable the success and the reach and the impact um it does not matter if you know hey rob that's your friend yeah no robert is one of my great friends i love him i i i think the world of his work i can separate the two um he single-handedly to me really saved image comics when image in the early 2000s was in a very dark place the second writer is brian cabon uh why the last man as we are doing this look back on the 2000s we cannot you know underscore enough what a big exciting buzzworthy um book why the last man was when it debuted in 2002 it's 2021 the first three episodes of why the last man dropped and i was just so enamored entertained thrilled to watch this amazing sci-fi comic book come to life across the screen even though it has been you know 19 years and uh and but but he didn't stop there obviously uh, my favorite brian k vaughn is 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 paper girls and i know that that is headed towards eyeballs our eyeballs in the very near future and also his sweeping galactic space opera saga which has got to be the best name for a series ever saga i mean just brilliant but the two of those guys have really helped define everything now before you scream out your favorite writer because you're going to tell me oh no 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 it was this guy and this guy i i i believe i can make like if if marvel loves someone they would push them but I've said this before. I wrote an article on my website, and maybe someday I'll bring the link up again. I, I found it about a year ago, but it was under the the haters, how I deal with it. I may have actually read some of it here on the air about a year, year and a half ago. But I read it from I wrote it for my um, website back I think in 2009 or 2010, and I, I I I said in it that if you think that your let's say your holy grail talent writer your um, sacred cow, let's call them your sacred cow, who you think everyone loves as much as you. I can show you where your sacred cow has got um, a pile of trash being thrown at them and a demerit and a giant misfire because nobody bats a thousand, okay? And, uh, and, and, and so you guys, I'm glad that you have your favorites. To me, that age, and it has never been more kind of resonant as we now get this giant why the last man, um, you know, a decade after Walking Dead kind of stormed the airwaves and has had as much as three spinoffs, hundreds of episodes, and has really become the signature show of an entire network. AMC was a different network before Walking Dead. Um, zombies were nowhere near as mainstream as they were before Walking Dead. 
because of Robert Kirkman, I became aware of all the Romero stuff. I've said openly and honestly, I was not into zombie anything. It was because of Robert. I knew they, I, I remember they existed. I saw the posters, the trailers, everything. I just never chose to go into that, those worlds. Based on Robert Kirkman's urging, I did. And I went down Romero's um, entire filmography and fell in love with it. And so many of the rules uh, that the slow walking zombies, as opposed to Zack Snyder's super speed zombies, which I love them too. I love them too. And I have had many arguments with Mr. Kirkman of The Walking Dead over my um, appreciation of the speed walking, speed chasing zombies as well. But, you know, Walking Dead is its own giant beast and it was born in the aughts it was born in the 2000s at the same time that ultimate x-men and ultimate spider-man were coming out invincible was launching shortly after walking dead was launching that entire kind of 2001 to 2003 you know period why the last man lands inside there um you know uh uh despite the matrix pointing everybody towards the invisibles uh, citing that as a huge influence for the wachowskis the Invisibles kind of never kind of got that extra boost. It didn't get that extra lift off. But this was the time for bold, daring talent. And and Marvel at the time was definitely uh, backing uh, both Brian Bendis and Mark Miller. They became the two charming uh, kind of teacher's favorites at Marvel Comics. I don't think anyone would deny that, especially given the fact that they both, when they started doing the... Um, the big spinoffs and the big crossovers that they did, you know, Brian did House of M and Mark did Civil War. But, uh, you know, again, they both got, each of them got a bite at the apple with the Ultimate line. So Marvel has launched this new initiative, get these new young friendly, and, and, and argue, you know, there's no argument. They put big talent. Mark Bagley had had the most success he'd ever had in his career drawing Spider-Man in the 90s. So they made sure he was drawing Spider-Man with Bendis when they launched. Uh, and and Bill Jemis, also the writer. Sorry. Those that those comics say Bill Jemis was a co-writer and was the story guy. So Bill Jemis, Brian Bendis, Ultimate Spider-Man with Mark Bagley, whose biggest success was Spider-Man. See, they were definitely creating these mashups with with the most commercial appeal with which to um and the cardstock covers do you guys remember those early cardstock covers it was very exciting these new initiatives there was also a magazine that they were putting out in the bookstores that w- that would have both ultimate spider-man and ultimate x-men so they were trying to for the most bang for their buck to get on the look you can watch the marvel heroes be reborn new adventures of your favorite characters from the beginning was kind of like the hook so that when these films came out, you could then go, oh, I can, I don't have to be left out either because it's, let's be honest, it's daunting to start on issue 351 or 5,000, you know, whatever, Batman 1,022. Um, it's much easier to sell people on a fresh launch. That's what Marvel did. The ultimate books were, were, were significant in that way, except, except for a giant misfire, in my opinion, because it was down after 16 issues and it was very strange and it spoke more to the Gemis Casada, um, uh, uh, their, their idea, their initiative to kind of change, become tastemakers for Marvel, change kind of the, the way you were um, getting your Marvel comics. What I mean by that is, especially in Hollywood, it, it, it isn't so much now because now so much is corporately serviced you 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 take the, the the paramount 
Studios, uh, you know, the head of Paramount Studios changed chairs in the last week. And now it's um, Brian Robbins, who we all used to see on Head of the Class. And he has gone into directing and producing and especially kids stuff on Nickelodeon. He's had a career that exceeded his um, career as an actor on Head of the Class and become a power broker behind the scenes. The guy that he is replacing, Jim Janopoulos, greenlit Deadpool for Fox. And um, and was the guy that, like, literally, I know Jim. We call him Jimmy G. He told me to my face. Um, you know, Rob, we, we, we decided to finally take the plunge after the guy that held the job before him was not pushing the button to make Deadpool for six years. So I will always be uh, indebted to Jimmy G. Uh, he has been around a long, long time in the trades when it was, um, when this new shuffling was happening, it was said Jimmy G came in to uh, Paramount in 2016, late 2016, and helped turn the fortunes around when it was suffering and, and, it, and it didn't have any hits and it got the Mission Impossible stuff back on track. Um, obviously, they have huge movies coming uh, that Jimmy G will have been the head of the studio when they made them, both Top Gun the long-awaited sequel to Tom Cruise's biggest film and the further installments of Mission Impossible. So they're both, interestingly enough, Tom Cruise vehicles. But bottom line, Jimmy G helped get this back on track. But now with the world of streaming and do they want to make low-budget stuff now? Do they want to make big $200 million movies? Uh, that's all in the up in the air. I imagine somebody like a Jimmy G, given the new stockholder kind of initiative, stepped aside, said, I, I feel good stepping aside. I made big sweeping movie pick, movies with Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible, you know, um, um, the Henry Cavill one and uh, and Mustache Gate and, and also this new return to form with Top Gun and then, the, and then these last two Mission Impossible movies. He knows that those are on his resume. He can step aside as Paramount tries to figure out who they're going to be and what audience they're going to cater to. That speaks to taste, tastemakers, and, and, and putting your fingerprints on what's to come next. Bill and Joe wanted to put their fingerprints on what was to come next. Part of that, the most of that, was this ultimate initiative and, again, getting guys like J. Michael Straczynski and Grant Morrison, both of whom I can sing effusively their praises. But occasionally you get a stumble, you get a misfire, and that is Ultimate Team-Up. Ultimate Team-Up ran 16 issues. The Ultimate moniker was on fire both for Spider-Man and X-Men, and we all know that it would then continue when Mark Miller and Brian Hitch give you the Ultimates. So it's like everything Ultimate associated was red hot except for Ultimate Team-Up because it indulged itself in, in trying to be like this, uh, more of a tastemaker. You can say they gave these guys great chances. They opened great doors and, and they did all that. It ultimately just was not successful. I won't, I will not call it anything other than, in my opinion, it wasn't successful because it was rolled up and finished. The sales weren't there. I remember walking in and, and it was an interesting idea that they would, the, the conceit of Ultimate Team-Up would be that like Marvel Team-Up, there would be different superheroes teaming up each and every issue, but, uh, but and they would all be written by Brian Bendis. But uh, the first issue, starring Spider-Man and Wolverine, was penciled and inked by Matt Wagner of Grendel fame. Who is he's great, he's fantastic, but he is not what I would say mainstream commercial. He was not on the par of the Andy Kubert, who are they're like we're going to give you Mark Miller, who you loved on DC Comics, Wildstorm's Authority. He's now going to come over here and do X-Men for us. And we're putting him with Andy and Adam Kubert, both of whom have had this huge success 
with the X-Men in the 90s. You associate them with the X-Men. Mark Bagley, you associate him with Spider-Man. We're going to let Bendis, who had come from a bunch of indie projects like Powers. Um, and uh, But now on Ultimate Team-Up, it was, it was more experimental. And they my hat's off to them for being experimental, but it was not the surefire you know, home run that they were looking for. The second issue, Spider-Man Hulk, is penciled by Phil Hester, inked by Andy Parks. Um, then you got Mike Allred doing Spider-Man Iron Man. Bill Sienkiewicz did Spider-Man Punisher. Then we've got really an, a deep dive into the underground kind of alt-comic indie, indie underground guys. Jim Mafood, okay? And, uh, and, and, and that's Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. And they hadn't even introduced the Ultimate Fantastic Four yet, so this was not even an Ultimate Canon. It was kind of in retroactively kind of set onto its own isolated thing. Then you got John Tottleman of Swamp Thing phase, uh, fame doing Spider-Man and Man-Thing and the Lizard. So let's bring on the reptiles. You know, Tottleman came to fame doing this, but hadn't had a commercial um, exposure in, in many years. Then Spider-Man and the X-Men, which is a huge role of the nice, with China Clugston Major. Again, going into the indie alt realm. Deep, deep. Then you've got Ted McGeever. Again, deep, deep into the indie alternate comics realm. Really, as outside of what was traditionally known as commercial comics, which was being represented by Bagley and, and Kubert. You know, issues 12 and 13 with Spider-Man and Doctor Strange were by Ted McGeever. Terry Moore uh, stepped in for Spider-Man Black Widow. Rick Mays did Spider-Man... Shang-Chi, and it was over. They they shuttered Ultimate Team-Up because it was not a sales success. Retailers would tell you, oh, these Ultimate books sell but for Ultimate Team-Up. Oh, these are doing good but for Ultimate Team-Up. So, so Ultimate Team-Up was admirable. It was an admirable swing, but um, it, was, it, it, was, it was proof that, um, you know, not everything that they were spinning was gold. And so that really... Uh, again, the, the successes of that period would be Ultimate Spider-Man by Jemis and Bendis, and then uh, Ultimate X-Men by Miller, and uh, and then what was coming then with Ultimates, which really was phenomenal and and, and more than anything, uh, really paved the way for what we see in the MCU. Uh, and then Straczynski on Spider-Man, which was electric. And Grant Morrison on on X Men was electric, and 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 again this so this period they had that was their tastes. They were tastemakers. That's how they what they were bringing as producers. Again, uh, a famous producer told me once, said Rob, as a producer, what you have is your taste. The actors, the writers, the directors that you bring to the project define your tastes, and I understand that now more than ever, the tastes of the. Of, of corporate America are money and they want to do whatever it takes to make the fastest, quickest, most guaranteed buck. On the flip side, I got to be honest, DC Comics, I remember at the time they were doing a storyline where the bridges uh, blew up and, and, and Gotham was alone and there was an entire uh, storyline uh, about it. Um, it was really interesting premise, but, uh, the Superman books, the Batman books, because my friends who were working on those books at the time, there was a lot of pressure for them to do better, and they kept trying to do everything they possibly could to get those books to turn around. Uh, so DC in the early 2000s was looking for its voice. Uh, 
it, it, it had all manner of capable talent trying to make all of that happen. Um, but, but it seemed like Marvel was finding its footing and pulling away. But most interesting to me, what, what was going on at Image Comics after... So, Rob Liefeld leaves in 96. Late 96. Almost 97. Jim Lee sells Wildstorm to DC in 97, solidifies it in 98. And the, 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 then, as I've told you, and this really also defines the early 2000s, as much as I think that we are going to look back and think, see that this was the age of Kirkman and Vaughn as the most definitive voices pushing the boundaries and creating, I think, the most uh, memorable works. Uh, and I mean, I, come on, can you really... In, uh, Robert Kirkman with Invincible now... Uh, with only eight episodes, it stood everything on its on its head. I mean, that cartoon again. My, my, I'm gonna because this quote is so great. I'm gonna use it because it's, but it's from my son, who goes, Dad. I, I I've seen you have all this invincible comics around our house for years, and I know I never bothered to pick it up, and now I know why you loved it so much because I love it, and that's him telling me from his from college because Invincible was something that he consumed before he finished his junior year and came home for the summer. And he's like, Dad, Invincible, oh my gosh, now I know why you loved it, oh my gosh. Okay. He was, uh, he, he was, that, that, that quote, it's so great because I did, I do have Invincible books everywhere and collections and hardcovers and, 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 uh, and the early editions and, and, uh, and the fact that that my son was able to say, uh, now I know, I, I know I saw this my whole life. Because <laughs> again, you know, he's three, four, five, six, seven, met Mr. Kirkman, loved Mr. Kirkman, became a giant walking dead crazy super fan, but did not interact with Invincible until he saw it on Amazon. And then, wow, it was open to him and he wanted to consume more of it. With Invincible and the Walking Dead Empire, and Robert Kirkman will tell you, and this I, I may be the most proudest of this, of anything I've ever said to anyone. Early on, uh, maybe just before the sixth episode of the first season of Walking Dead ever aired, knowing what I had seen, what was to come, and the mashups, because it's not a zombie show. It's a Western. And it's a Western, and sometimes it's a samurai show, especially those key Michonne issues. And sometimes it's a horror show. Sometimes it's a lost kind of where are we in this Pokemon post-apocalyptic world, all the questions, what lurks around the corner, what are the possibilities? I said to Robert, I said, this is your Star Wars. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, it's endless. It's a world that you will be able to creatively mine forever. And once the, the, publics, the, once the public has been exposed to this, they're not going to be able to get enough for it. The way that Star Wars is being mined at that time, you know, it was only in its, you know, I mean... 25 years of Star Wars. I'm telling Robert, he has another Star Wars, another Star Wars world on his on his plate. And it's turned out to be even more expansive than I believed. And, uh, you know, World Beyond is kind of the younger kid version. And I saw today that that second season comes out in the next few weeks. And again, between all of what Robert is building and all that he has written and Firepower and, and Oblivion Song... I mean, Robert is a powerhouse. He doesn't get out and grab the mic and do all the boastful, crazy things that all the guys from the 70s, 80s, and even me and my crew in the 90s did. He's quieter and nicer, but no less uh, ridiculously resonant. With, with Brian K. Vaughn, 
between Y, Saga, Paper Girls, and everything that is to come. This guy is a, sig a signature voice, a signature voice, a signature talent with these powerhouse productions that people can just adapt till, till, till their eyes bulge. And, and that's what is going to happen. And that saga doesn't get enough because it went on a bit of a hiatus. But when it hit, you know, 2010, 2011, it was like, wow, we forgot how powerful the vision of, of, of Brian K. Vaughn can be and, and how Im immensely, um, you know, uh, impactful. And, and, and he is, uh, it's just a, he's like the Tarantino, um, you know, it's like, it's like between them, they're the Paul Thomas Anderson, the Quentin Tarantino, pick one of, of their age. The guys, I mean, when you look back, you go Pulp Fiction, Boogie Nights, you know, um, um, there will be blood, you know, uh, uh, you know, Reservoir Dogs, you know, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, th th these are the signature directorial voices in the same way that there was a Scorsese and the Coppola and the Spielberg and the Lucas. And so, uh, but but Image Comics, after Jim, after Liefeld, went into this weird period. And it was a period where, as I've said, Mark Silvestri retires. J. Scott Campbell retires. Dale Keown retires. Rob Liefeld literally did not draw comics for three years. Retires. Um, Todd McFarlane retires. You name it and your favorite. And I've talked about the fact that, and I always say, it's um, it, it's the line from Blade Runner when when the creator tells Roy, you know, the, the, the flame that burns twice as bright burns half as long and you have burned so very bright, Roy. Well, what he's saying, it's like a band that tours for two years and then has to stop and get off the road and not tour for another two years. It just burned them out. We burned so very bright, the collective kind of, your, your collective 90s superstars uh, that we all kind of passed out, except for Eric Larson, who gets the extra, you know, credit the extra medal for being the hardest working guy in, 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 in comics of the last, you know, 35 years. And there's no question. There's nobody who can take that mantle from him. He never stopped. And in the, and in the late nineties, not only was he writing and drawing Savage Dragon, he was writing Aquaman. He was, um, he was writing Wolverine. He had done a new version of Nova the guy was crack-a-lacking with energy, with juice. He was like reborn. I did those four issues of Wolverine and I said, well, this is this is great. I want to go out on top. In my head, I go, this is where I park it. This is where I stop doing anything. I would not start doing another comic until 2003. We started, you know, making a family. We had my son Luke. We had my son Chase. Joy and I were building our family. I took an extended time away from producing comics, but never from observing, consuming um, especially the dawn of the internet age, chat rooms, the, 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 the websites that were, that were blowing up, um, Rich Johnston and, 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 um, you know, lying in the gutters, which became bleeding cool. And I know it was something maybe prior to lying in the gutters. Um, and, 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 and all of these new sites that were, were, were rising up. And, and again, the advent of where you could get on these message boards and talk, it was pre-social media, but we were all sitting on our computer screens doing the same thing. And, you know, a new story broke and then you'd go read the comments, okay? The age of the comments. And, and so what, uh, uh, image comics, I mean, when you think about that with, with Jim Lee, once he sold to Wildstorm, did not draw again until he launched, you know, late 2002, uh, Batman, right? 
with Hush, and that ran all through 2003. It's almost like Jim had a four year, had a five year deal and and had to do something in the fifth year because 98, 99, 2000, 2001, he is really gone. Maybe a few spot illustrations, some some covers, but uh, really had just gone more into the background. Wolf Portacio retired. We all kind of our output was low, and what that does is that creates opportunity. That creates giant opportunity. The guys who are seen to be the biggest writers in the 90s had all kind of, for better or worse, cooled off. The Mark Waves, the Kurt Busiek's, uh, the, 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 the age of the, you know, it was six years past the, the peak of Kurt's writing with, 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 with Marvels, you know. Um, uh, uh, you know, Mark Wade, uh, that stuff had kind of, it's kind of, there was a transition. You could feel it. You could feel it. It's like, like on a team after a player plays for 10 to 15 years or, or his peak is over and there are new people coming in to replace. That's what was going on. That was happening in the 2000s, in the aughts. And, uh, and again, you know, again, over at Marvel, you got this ultimate team up experiment. Let's, let's mash up. Let's get some, let's get some, uh, really alternative comics, underground comic people. It really, really out there indie guys to do our mainstream Marvel characters that was not welcomed with success. They shut that model down. Whereas again, ultimate X-Men, ultimate Spider-Man would go on into the hundreds and, uh, and, and ultimates would become the biggest, most resonant, most exciting book of all of them. Eventually we would get ultimate fantastic four and everything else that would follow. But, but during this period image to pay the bills, because as I told you, image had a very different business model. Whatever they were bringing in from books would go to pay the overhead, and they needed sixty, seventy thousand dollars a month, which you could get with a bunch of like we call them, we called them booby books or or girly books, because suddenly there was a ton of like half naked ladies running across the image publishing catalog, and that's what they were giving you, and none of them were long term, a lot of short term stuff. But it was there because, hey, you want to sell us your girl book? Girl books sell. We'll be able to sell a certain amount of those, which means you'll be able to do six or seven before your numbers dry up. And in the interim, we'll get $3,000, $2,500, $3,500 a month out of you, which is all essential when you're trying to keep the doors open. Again, Spawn isn't expanding. Spawn maybe has one or two books, but it's not like we're Wildstorm and Extreme or even Top Cow is scaling back. And then in the early 2000s, Mike Turner, who was you know, Top Cow's biggest star breaks with them. We've covered that in comic book feuds. We, we've got an entire comic book feud section and we break with that as Mike leaves, you know, Top Cow. And Mike is their most prolific talent um, between uh, b- between Witchblade and then, and then the launch of Fathom and then the Tomb Raider stuff that he was doing. He was incredibly prolific. Then suddenly, whatever was happening at Top Cow Dave Finch, who had really been a homegrown talent there, had done, you know, Cyberforce and Ripclaw and Ascension, was gone. He was now at Marvel, and he was cutting his teeth at Marvel with the big big boys uh, on these Call of Duty books. The, the, the echo of the, I don't want to call it success because that's weird, but the Marvel 9-11 books were extremely resonant. They touched people. They moved people. It was something that people that, that people were legit excited about, and uh, so they did echo. They, they did they did books honoring law enforcement and, and firefighters. And Dave Finch transitioned during this time, two thousand one, 
to drawing these books where he would then be welcomed onto mainstream Marvel comics like Avengers. So even the Image Studios, I mean, Extreme is gone, Wildstorm is gone, the last one, Top Cow, is now finding Brandon Peterson and, um, and, and Dave Finch and some of their bright shining stars exiting for other, you know, popular avenues. Now, we have not gotten into, and we will have, but we will give it its due here, this was the period where the rise of cross-gen. Cross-gen was an, an idea that was an in-house, and everyone is in-house at cross-gen. It was located um, in Florida, exactly in Florida. I, it does not hit my memory banks at this period, but um, the, uh, the this was a publishing company that... Uh, that, that, that rose up in the late late 90s and looked to challenge the majors in the early um, in the early 2000s in the aughts and it was a place where Jimmy Chung got a big you know shining spotlight on him to shine and Greg land and and, and Steve McNiven um, this was kind of the first big opportunities these guys had and um, cross gen launched in 1988, they shuttered in 2004, and they were the product of a man named Mark Alessi, and uh, and and he had created. Okay, so it was in Tampa, or, or uh, uh, Orlando. Orlando is where they built this campus, where everyone would come and make comics inside the building. Um, over time, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Barbara Kiesel, all were on staff there helping shepherd people like the Brandon Peterson who went from Top Cow to Cross Gen. Dave Finch went from Top Cow to Marvel. Um, Cross Gen definitely uh, shepherded the careers, the early careers of Steve McNiven, of Jimmy Chung. And when Cross Gen failed to really solidify itself after a number of launches, it just, it, it had all, they, they, they spent a ton of money. Mark Alessi put his money up invested in this vision, uh, bought tons of ads in in Wizard and, and, and the fan press uh, to get as much notice as possible, but the books just would not um, rise above whatever limitations the retail and the public put on them because they weren't kind of recognized, recognizable, and none of the guys doing it. Again, this is where like the Mark Wade, these guys were stepping into different roles because their 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 immediate peaks had happened. Um, like, you know, we've seen it. Matthew McConaughey, they called it the McConaughey's for a reason because his first wave had burned out and then it was True Detective that started his new wave. But in the between, there was the, you know, the flame had kind of dimmed. He, some of these people whose flame had kind of dimmed went to get, you know, get their, you know, maybe shock their careers back into shape and they were responsible for shepherding, again, Steve McNiven, uh, Jimmy Chung, Greg Land, all of whom, when 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 things got shaky with CrossGen, found homes at Marvel. Steve McNiven would do Ultimate Fantastic Four and then go on to do Civil War, um, which would be monumental. Jimmy Chung became the Young Avengers guy. Brandon Peterson did all manner of um, of events, but but Image was wobbly and was shaky and was was putting out, in my opinion, the weakest material uh, it had ever put out. I was it was. At that period, I was the most legitimately concerned. 
for Image Comics. But here comes a guy named Robert Kirkman who packages books with guys I'd never heard of before, like Corey Walker, like like Tony Moore, and 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 um, was was creating these amazingly entertaining comic books with a fresh voice, a fresh perspective, given that some of these other voices, their lights had dimmed and and they hadn't had their reconnaissance yet. And and Robert Kirkman, like a new rookie, stepping off the bench, suddenly started scoring 30 points a game. And and Brian K. Vaughn, same. And and these guys were suddenly the new rock stars. The guys with the Walking Dead became um, but way before Walking Dead was a TV phenomenon, it was a comic book phenomenon. Those books were hard to get. They were disappearing. They were going up in sales every month, notching more and more thousands of copies, climbing the charts, invincible. I mean, th- this was an exciting time. It, it single-handedly changed how I viewed Image because it got me excited for Image Comics. Just like Brian K. Vaughn got me excited for what you could do within the creator-owned realm. I know it was a Vertigo book, but nonetheless... Why the Last Man, now watching it on television in 2021 on Hulu on FX, is like, wow, do you remember how great and resonant and how buzzy this book was? And, and, and again, then you follow that with Saga and Paper Girls and, and everything that Robert's done. And these guys are in control of their own futures. And that is perhaps the biggest reason why I give them the mantle right now of the 2000s. And uh, when we get back to discussing the 2000s, it's way too big for one episode. We've set the table here. The Ultimates, Quemus, okay? Um, you know, Walking Dead, Invincible, Why the Last Man, the, the, the image regaining its footing, okay? So many of your favorite talents retired. The movies are starting to come out. We have set the table for the aughts, the 2000s. In part two, we will discuss the artists, and I think there is one guy who has had the biggest impact on the comics you are picking up today. But you are going to have to wait and come back next time and find out just who the heck that is. In the meantime, this is the time that I read your very generous reviews that you leave for me. And I will be happy today to share with you um, more of these generous reviews. You guys, we need your reviews. I read them at the end of every single uh, episode, and I'm always so happy that you guys are, are are leaving these positive vibes for me to share with the rest of you. This comes from Craig Michael Patrick, and it is under um, uh, uh, the 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 name Robservations Dissertations. Okay, five stars. Thank you, Craig Michael Patrick. Rob Liefeld's insider observations and stories are a great source of insight into the comic book industry and broadly pop culture. Um, his attention to detail, his research and references paint an energetic and colorful picture for an industry that doesn't quite get the respect it deserves in American culture. As an ex-Cubert school student, I can tell you that Rob's affection for story is a delightful, entertaining, and informative way to spend the morning. This is one of three or four podcasts I look forward to on a weekly basis. Bravo, sir. Keep going. Thank you, Craig Michael Patrick, and thank you, for listening to the show, sharing it, spreading word of mouth, for being there for me, having my back. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing. The 2000s, we have so much more to go. We are in the aughts. What a crazy time, 21 years back. And and moves 
and 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 decisions that that shaped where we are at right now. And is that even a good thing? We'll discuss. So on social media, I am at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. Full name at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld, short, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D on, on Instagram. Both have the blue check. They tell you that it's really me. I'm all over Facebook. I'm maybe in every possible group that could be on Facebook or, or am, am going to be there soon. Um, I'm all over social media. I love talking to you guys, hanging out, um, exchanging ideas and energy, and I am so appreciative that we can talk as frequently as we can. Thank you for tuning into this show. You know the drill. You are going to take care of yourself. You promised me. And you're going to stay safe. And we are going to talk again real soon.